turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> chapter 1. I'm going to continue on now week 2 in Mark's Gospel. Put yourself in the wilderness of Judea, <clears throat> near the Jordan River. It's the year 28 AD. They don't call it 28 AD yet, but they will. <clears throat> you've, you've come down to the river, down to the River Jordan, to see this famous hellfire and brimstone preacher. The guy dressed in camel's hair who has a very strange diet. He eats locusts and honey. He's calling the religious leaders vipers, a sentiment you may happen to agree with. And he says that even the Jews need to repent of their sinful filthiness, almost like they were same, the same as Gentiles. You're not so sure about that part. That part feels a little offensive. But you're intrigued by his boldness, his message of the one who's going to come, the, the one who even this wilderness holy man won't be worthy to stand before, won't be worthy to serve. That message touches a nerve. You know your nation needs, you know you need a powerful and majestic savior like that. But then imagine your surprise if you're out here at the Jordan watching this guy do his thing. When one day, John seems to think that that man has come. John, there in the water, up to his waist as he's baptizing people, turns, looks up on the bank, and behold, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. But there you look, and on the bank stands not some mighty general, not a stately prince, but some guy from Galilee. He's got a funny accent. Looks like he's probably a carpenter. And he's coming to get baptized, which, if he's coming to take away sin, why does he need to get baptized? John has the same question. <clears throat> he, he agrees with you as far as that goes. The Galilean comes to him in the water, and John protests. I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? And the Galilean answers him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And you're standing there, and you wonder, what in the world are these guys talking about? And then your confusion is transformed to shock, maybe even terror, when a moment later, John lowers this man into the water, and as he pulls him back up, the heavens open up, some kind of form that looks like a dove descends, and then there is a loud voice that thunders, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And you're just standing there thinking, what in the world is happening? Now, I imagine that whole scene would have been disorienting for anyone present there when Jesus came to John for baptism. I obviously wasn't there, but there's still elements of, of it that perplex me as I've thought and meditated on this passage, not just this past week, but as I've thought about it my whole Christian life. Like, what is going on? with Why is Jesus getting baptized? Now, I talked last week about how so many of Mark's narratives are very vivid in their details, and this is the opposite. Well, it's not, it's not that it's not vivid, but it's very sparse. It's very short. His narrative of the baptism and the following wilderness temptation reveal connections for us that, that though they are sparse, I think 
They help us make sense of this scene in the history of Israel and the eternal impact they have for us today. So let's just read the passage first. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Though we're told in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1 that this gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his actual presence was only hinted at last week. We looked at verses 2 through 8, and we spent most of that time talking about John the Baptist. But in verse 9, we meet Jesus himself. And we meet him, again, as we discussed last week, as an adult. There's no birth narrative in Mark. There's no discussion of eternity past like there is in the Gospel of John. We just get Jesus here coming from his hometown in Nazareth down to see his cousin John in the Jordan River. Mark records this event in extremely matter-of-fact terms that that can almost be deceiving in their simplicity. Part of what I quoted earlier was from Matthew. Matthew records John's objections and Jesus' response to those objections. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, as Matthew 3.15. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Why did Jesus need to be baptized? And we discussed last week that John's baptism was one of repentance, one where you are agreeing with God about your sin and thus seeing the need to be submerged in the waters of baptism and brought out symbolically into new life after this confession, this repentance. It was meant to indicate an agreement with God that the individual in question was a sinner in need of cleansing and forgiveness. But Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of. He had no need for cleansing. So why would he go through that ritual? One simple answer that I've heard many, many times is that he was, and I don't think it's entirely wrong, but he was setting in place the pattern for all believers to follow. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus gives the great commission, go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. All of that happens under the broader category of make disciples of all the nations. So baptism, public identification with Jesus, is the first step in discipleship. And it does set, Jesus here is setting a pattern for his disciples to follow. But I think if we just jump forward from this event and say, well, he's setting an example, we're actually missing a key piece, maybe the key piece, of what's happening, the significance of Jesus' action. His baptism, Matthew 3 says, is meant to fulfill something, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill the orderly events that are supposed to take place. And that something, I think, primarily has to do with the Exodus. Most of us are familiar with the Exodus story, recorded in the Old Testament book of Exodus. (laughs) That was a tricky one. Joseph had brought his family in the book of Genesis into the safety of Egypt during a period of severe famine. And 70 people go down, and over the course of the 400-some years that follow, 
the family grows exponentially from that 70 to millions of people. But also over that time period, the pharaohs who had been so helped by Joseph, who had been saved by Joseph and his wisdom, start to forget about Joseph. And so we come to Exodus chapter 1, and it says there arose a new king, a new pharaoh over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He didn't, didn't know about Joseph, didn't care about all that history. He just sees this massive nation living within his nation, and he says, we've got a problem here. So he decides to deal shrewdly with the people of Israel, which means being ruthless with them and putting them in cruel bondage, extracting forced labor from them. He puts them into slavery. And through a long story, which obviously we don't have time to go into here, God raises up a man named Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and toward the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But after the series of plagues, the final one after the death of the firstborn, the people of Israel are really driven out by Pharaoh at that point. He says, get out of here. They, they have to leave in the middle of the night. The whole nation has to take off. I just read that this morning, actually, in Exodus 12. After they're gone, Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, wait a second. How are we going to build more pyramids? Who's going to build my tomb? They're, they're gone. He changes his mind. He becomes extremely angry. He brings out his whole army, his fastest chariots, and pursues the people of Israel and drives them up against the Red Sea. Apparently, there's no escape for the people of Israel. But then God works a mighty deliverance, a marvelous deliverance, bringing them through the Red Sea on dry ground. He tells Moses, put your staff in the water, and God brings about a strong wind that splits the sea in two and creates dry ground through the ocean floor, the sea floor, for the people of Israel to walk on. And they get across, and then when the army is allowed to pursue, God closes back over them the waters, And the people of Israel live happily ever after, right? Not quite. God brought them out to worship him. In fact, originally, Moses was just going to say, hey, let us go out into the desert for a three days journey and worship God at a mountain. And and Pharaoh had said no. But while, while they go out, God does bring them to a mountain. And he brings Moses up on this mountain and he gives him the Ten Commandments. But while Moses is up there, The people of Israel, who have just been brought through the sea by God, are like, man, Moses has been gone a long time. We don't really know what's going on here. And so they decide, hey, Aaron, we need visible gods to lead us. And so Aaron makes this golden calf, and the people start worshiping false gods right after God has brought them through the Red Sea. And this sets the tone for the entire wilderness period. God will do something amazing for the people. He will preserve them. He will protect them. He will provide for them. And then shortly thereafter, they break faith. They quit trusting him. This happened again, notably at the edge of the promised land. So God brings them pretty direct journey straight up to the edge of the promised land. And then they send spies into the land and 12 spies, 10 of them come back saying, there's giants. We can't do this. This is crazy. Let's go back to Egypt. And there were two faithful spies, but they were not listened to. The ten were listened to. And because of that, because the people cowered in fear in the face of the giants, God curses them to 40 years in the wilderness. 
until the generation who were adults in Egypt die, all except faithful spies Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else dies. Moses himself dies before going into the promised land. But then, as you come into the book of Joshua, Joshua, and again, you might remember this from last week, Joshua is just the Hebrew form of Jesus. It's Yeshua. It's the same name. Jesus, Joshua, leads the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. So, what in our text makes me think that Mark is intending to call all of this to mind? (laughs) Three factors that we'll look at. The language of sun, sonship, the wilderness temptation, and the rending of the heavens. So first we'll talk about the sun language. The, The most obvious way in which Jesus is connected to the people of Israel in our passage is the language of sonship. Verse 1 tells us that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as Jesus comes up out of the water and looks up, he sees the sky splitting, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaks, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. We take this language for granted. Of course Jesus is the Son of God. But that language, with all that we mean by it, would not have been assumed for the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, the term sons of God is used in a number of different ways. When it's used in the plural, it's often referring to angelic beings. Uh, You can see like Job chapter 1, verse 6, the the sons of God appear before Yahweh the Lord. It can also refer to individual Israelites, the sons of God referring to all of the people of Israel as individuals. Deuteronomy 14 uses it that way. But then in a singular form, the idea of a son of God can refer to the Davidic king. 2 Samuel 7.14 uses it that way, where, if you remember from a few months ago, David was planning to build a house for God, and God says, no, I will build a house for you, David, and you will have a son, and he will be a son to me. So the Davidic king there is spoken of as a son of God. And that latter usage seems to be picking up on another way the singular son of God is used in the Old Testament. And that is to refer to the people of Israel as a whole, the whole nation, the whole people, as God's son. If you go back to the Exodus story in Exodus chapter 4, it says God's giving Moses instructions on what to say. Exodus 4, beginning in verse 22, says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, which in the tenth plague is exactly what happens. This language is picked up by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31.9, where God says, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And even though Ephraim is part of the half-tribe of Joseph, there are multiple times in the Old Testament where Ephraim is used to refer to the nation as a whole. So God's saying, I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, referring to the whole nation, is my firstborn son. And then finally, perhaps most importantly, in Hosea chapter 11, 
Hosea is right before Joel, if that's any help. Uh, Hosea 11, beginning in verse 1. Or I'm just going to read verse 1. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And like I said, that Hosea passage is of particular significance because Matthew picks it up in Matthew 2.15 and applies it directly to Jesus. So after Jesus was born and the, the Magi come to Herod and say, hey, where's he's been born king of the Jews? And Herod's very upset by the idea that anybody would challenge his kingship and decides to slaughter the children in Bethlehem. Well, God appears to Mary and Joseph in a dream and says, go, go to Egypt to protect the child. And so while every child under, every boy under two in Bethlehem is killed, Jesus and Mary and Joseph head to Egypt. And when Herod dies, God appears to Joseph in a dream again and says, you can come back now because he who sought to kill you or kill your son is, is dead. And so as Jesus is brought by his parents up out of Egypt, Matthew says this fulfills Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. But when Hosea wrote that, he's clearly referring back to the Exodus. He's not, he's not writing a prophecy saying this is going to happen in the future. In the context of Hosea, he's looking backwards. But, but Matthew says, yes, it's true backwards, but it's also true forward. This pattern gets fulfilled in Jesus, the true son of God. Mark's original readers would likely have been familiar with that Old Testament language of Israel being God's son. And now that language is being used for Jesus. And this matters because it should set our expectations as we read the scriptures to see patterns in the life of Old Testament Israel as finding their fulfillment, finding their point, finding their ultimate meaning in Jesus himself. Israel, God's son, was brought up out of Egypt, through the waters of the sea, and into the wilderness. And likewise, Jesus, God's son, was brought up from the waters of baptism and driven out into the wilderness. Which brings us to the next part, into the wild. I mentioned last week how prominent the language of wilderness is in this part of Mark chapter 1. Jesus came, or John rather, came to the wilderness in verse 4. Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness in verse 12. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, verse 13, and the mention of the wild animals just kind of drives home. No, this really is the wilderness, guys. Like, it's it's desolate out there. There's nobody out here but wild animals. And in those 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. But while the people of Israel, in their time in the wilderness, repeatedly failed in the face of temptation and testing, choosing to complain, not trusting the Lord for his provision, and telling Moses, we were better off as slaves. Man, we had onions and leeks and all kinds of great stuff in Egypt. Jesus' time in the wilderness was different. You might be familiar with the three temptations of Jesus presented in both Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And we think of that as that's the temptation of Jesus by Satan. But if you look at those passages carefully and then here in Mark, it seems like those are probably just like the crescendo, the very end. Like, Satan's already thrown a bunch at him, and here's the best he's got at the very peak of the onslaught. Verse 13, he was tempted in the wilderness 
40 days. Well, those three temptations didn't take 40 days. So he's tempted all through this period. And then at the very end, Satan comes with those three temptations. But Jesus withstands the temptation. He holds fast under trial. His time in the wilderness is part of why the author of Hebrews can say that he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Mark wants us to see the wilderness period as analogous to that of Israel. But rather than being flavored by failure, Jesus' wilderness period is flavored by faithfulness, which is pleasing to the Father. The third the third indicator that, that this scene Mark wants to call to mind Israel, not just Jesus himself, is that the heavens are rent. The heavens are broke open. <clears throat> Verse 10, and when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Now that language of the heavens being torn open is number one, strange. <laughs> Strange as all get out. What in the world would it look like for the sky to be torn open? The heavens, uh, heavens there usually in the scriptures just means the sky, to be torn open. What does that mean? I have no idea. But it it must have been a sight to behold. <clears throat> Number two, it's also not original. It, Mark didn't come up with that language himself. Almost all commentators see a connection here between the heavens being torn open at Jesus' baptism and a prayer for mercy we find in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 64, what's been happening in Isaiah 63 is is that this prayer has begun. Verse 13 of Isaiah 63 says, You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. And Isaiah, the prophet, is praying for the nation of Israel. And then Isaiah speaks of how the people have essentially become dispossessed. They've acted like they don't even live in the land or belong in the land anymore. And he's writing before they actually do get taken into captivity. <clears throat> but, but they no longer looked like God's people. They, they were characterized by uncleanness. Chapter 64 and verse 6 says that their corruption uh, by sin is, is really grotesque. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And that translation, polluted garment, is very polite compared to what it is in Hebrew. They're really messy. It's not good. Even their goodness has become devastatingly ugly and filthy. Well, in the middle of this prayer which starts off with, God, you are our redeemer, and we really need redeemed because even our righteousness is really bad. In the middle of that is Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Oh, that the heavens would be torn open and that you would descend upon us. Well, that's precisely what happens in Mark chapter 1. But God doesn't descend upon the people writ large, like Isaiah seems to be praying for. Rather, The heavens are rent open, they're broke open, and the spirit descends like a dove on the representative king of the people, the the Davidic king, who is the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, who symbolically represents the whole nation. The coming of Jesus and his being visibly given the spirit by the father is the beginning of the answer to Isaiah's prayer.
He is the servant of the Lord, spoken of in Isaiah 42, 2. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the one who will lead the new exodus, the exodus from the slavery of sin, and give justification to all who have faith in him. So I know that was a lot of like (laughs) running all over the Bible, biblical theology. I try not to do too much of that in sermons usually, but I think it's important. If if you're sitting here wondering what's all the up, what's the upshot of all this identification, these callbacks to Israel's exodus and the wilderness years, here's here's the take-home piece of this. In identifying with the plight and the history of Israel, Jesus is also identifying with my plight and yours. You and I are born into a much worse bondage than the temporary bondage of ancient Israel. They were slaves to Pharaoh, driven by his cruel whips. But more than that, they were slaves to sin, naturally driven by and following the lusts of the flesh. And this is a slavery which we share with them and which will ultimately lead us to hellacious separation from God forever in the lake of fire if we're left there. In being baptized in the Jordan River, reenacting both the crossing of the Red Sea out of Egypt and the crossing of that same Jordan River into the Promised Land, Jesus is presenting himself as the one who will bring true deliverance. He's both the greater Moses and the greater Joshua, But unlike them, because if you remember when the people crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they also went across on dry ground miraculously. But Jesus didn't go across on dry ground. He was buried in the waters of God's judgment and wrath like the armies of Pharaoh had been. He was submerged into the waters of God's judgment, dying the death and bearing the wrath which was deserved by God's enemies, you and me. And when you come to Jesus, he gives you that death as a gift. And he also gives the resurrection life on the other side of it. A life where our identity shifts from being God's enemies to ourselves being his sons and daughters. That's what John 1.12 says. That's what we read in Galatians 4 today. That if we have trusted in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are children of the promise. We are Abraham's children. This new life as a son of God is not driven by our lust and our sin anymore. It's not driven by the slavery that we were born into, but it's a life driven by the spirit, which brings us to our final point. The exodus of Jesus promises us the strength to face temptation. Look at what the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Here Paul reminds his readers of the account of the Exodus. They were under the cloud and passed through the sea, and he calls this in verse 2, baptism. 
They were baptized into Moses. He then says they ate spiritual food, manna. And if you don't remember the deal with manna in Exodus 16, tells us of the Israelites complaining that God's brought them out in the wilderness to starve them to death. There's no food out here. Instead of doing what many grumpy parents would do and say, tough nuts, I'm just going to strike you dead. You're not grateful for me saving you. Instead, God gives them the food they need. He graciously gives them this miraculous food. 16, 14 of Exodus says it is a fine flake-like thing, finest frost on the ground. They'd wake up in the morning and there would be enough for the day. But don't be greedy because it's not going to last two days. They weren't quite sure what it was, so they called it manna, which means, what is it? The Lord gave them this supernatural food, spiritual food, to sustain them through their desert years. And he also provided for them supernatural water in the form of the rock which poured forth. And this rock shows up twice in the Exodus narrative. In Exodus 17, just the next chapter, the people are again quarreling, fighting, complaining to Moses, this time because there's no water. And Moses takes the complaint to the Lord. And he's kind of joining in, like, God, why have you brought us out here to kill us with thirst? And God tells Moses to strike this rock, and it pours forth water. Later on in Numbers chapter 20, much later in the wilderness journeys, the people are facing a similar situation. There's no water. And this time, God tells Moses to speak to the rock, and it will pour forth water. But Moses apparently is like, had it up to here with the people. And either in his pride or his frustration or some combination of the two, those two are often intertwined, pride and frustration, he, instead of listening to the voice of the Lord and speaking to the rock, strikes it again. And again, we might expect that God's going to say, you know what? I told you to do it this way. You did it this way. I'm going to withhold my blessing. But instead, while Moses does face consequences, that action is why Moses does not go into the promised land. God still pours water out of that rock and provides for the people. Moses faces consequences, but the people are provided for. And again, lest that all seem like a history lesson, Paul says that the rock, the one who poured forth water to satisfy the needs of the nation, was Christ himself. He is the fountain of living water. He is the one who gives the spirit. Mark 1.8 says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John 7, Jesus says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. John 6, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000 One of the only miracles, I I think it's in all four Gospels, which is pretty rare, um, that you have an event all four Gospels cover. Outside of like the crucifixion. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has snuck across the water at night by walking. And the people run around the lake looking for him the next day. And they catch up to him and they say, you know, Jesus... I mean, that was all neat, feeding us all yesterday. But, you know, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. What, sh- what sign are you going to show us? <laughs> like, guys, were you there? But <laughs> they say, Moses gave us manna. What are you going to show us? Mark 6, beginning verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven 
and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, they're not actually very sincere in that statement if you keep reading down in the chapter. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And as we walk through the wilderness of this life, not yet in the promised land, crossing the final Jordan into the promised land of Revelation 21 and 22, facing what Newton calls many dangers, toils, and snares. In that wilderness, God gives to his children the life-giving water of the Spirit. Jesus offers himself to us as the true bread of heaven to sustain us. While angels came and ministered to Jesus in his wilderness trial, he promises to himself keep us and present us before the presence of his glory with great joy, Jude 24. Jesus leads us out of the bondage to sin, and he provides us by his word and his spirit with everything that we need to walk in obedience and blessing all through this life. The passage that we read there in 1 Corinthians 10 continues, verses 5 and 6. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And overthrown, I think he means overthrown by their sin, overthrown by temptation. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then down, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. When you are tempted, tempted to lust by a halftime show, tempted to greed by an expertly designed commercial, tempted by one of the thousand garden variety temptations we face every single day, remember, if you are in Christ, he purchased your freedom from bondage. You don't have to give in to that temptation. You have the authority and the ability because of the Holy Spirit within you to say no to sin. You, that might mean redirecting your thoughts. It might mean turning off the TV in an instance. It might mean a lot of different things in different situations. But the principle to remember is this, that Jesus died for your sin and you are to die to your sin. The Israelites give us a negative example. But Jesus, after being brought through the waters of baptism, went into the wilderness and resisted the temptation of Satan perfectly. So when you are faced with temptation, remember Jesus and draw your strength from him. Resist the devil like Jesus did, and he will flee from you, James 4, 7 says, just like he fled from Jesus. The guy standing on the bank of the Jordan River that day would not have understood all of that. But Mark wants you to understand that the gift of Jesus' gift of forgiveness for sin and freedom from sin can transform your life right now. And it's only possible because Jesus identified with sinful Israel and sinful us in baptism and then driven by the Spirit 
resisted temptation both in our place and as our example. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus, your son, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And we ask that you would continue to preserve and protect us through his good work in us by the power of the Spirit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to identify with us, to be buried for us into death and to drink up the wrath of the Father for us. And we thank you, Father, that you that you accepted that, that you were pleased with that sacrifice. And you are now pleased to call all who trust in Jesus your children. We thank you for that gift in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll, just, I'll pray for the food now so that we don't have that awkward pause later. Father God, thank you. Uh, thank you for being able to be part of your people. Uh, we thank you for the food that's been prepared and uh, the hands that prepared it. I pray that you would bless our time together and bless the rest of our day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can turn it off first. Turn it off. Turn the... Mm.